Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our Sunday School teacher, the scripture scholar extraordinaire, the pseudo-psalmist himself. I don't know what that means. Don't say that. Okay, I don't want to say think that. that. I'm not comfortable with Our that. friend, my friend and yours, Dr. Scott Powell. And Scott, aloha. Hello, J.D. It's good to be back with you. Good to be back. And what are we going to be covering in this episode of Sunday School, so, Psalm style? Psalm style. Today, we are talking about what is called Book 3 of book the Psalms. Book 3 of the Psalms. So that's uh, Psalm 73 through 89. And that is great. So today, in this episode of Sunday School, we are going to cover Book 3 of the Psalms, Psalm 73 to 89. And to kick things off, here's the Pillar's own Ed Condon with Psalm 73 and 74. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in troubles as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God my King is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. 
Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Scott, I'm really excited for this. I have to tell you, man, this season of Sunday School, in which we cover the Psalms, this Psalm season of Sunday School has been for me... It's a lot of alliteration, uh, once again. Uh, yeah, it has been I feel for like me. every week you have different alliter- alliteration. But... I know, it's just a bit of a... And I'm trying to work to the place where I work the word shibboleth in there, because it's a biblical <laughs> word. Nice. Yeah, okay. Well, you, you've done it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this shibboleth... It's a bit of a cheating way. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> This Sunday, this Psalm season of Sunday school has been for me elucidating because I, I just feel like, so Scott, I pray with the Psalms, you know, I, uh, especially we're recording this in Lent, although I don't know when we'll release it, but we're recording this in Lent and here in Lent, I have been praying with the church's liturgy of the hours yeah. every day. And much of the liturgy of the hours is the Psalms. And, Absolutely. and for me, this Sunday school season has really opened up the Psalms to me, but I also oh, want to say to our listeners that at the same time, um, Praying with Psalms is where it's with the Psalms is where it's at. That our hope for this entire season of Sunday school would be that it helps you better to pray with the Psalms. Whether that means, you know, reading a few Psalms aloud uh, at night. Remember, as Doctor Powell has told us about a million times, the Psalms are meant to be said aloud. So mm-hmm. reading the Psalms aloud at night, yeah. or praying the Church's Divine Liturgy, the Divine Office, which you can get with a kind of an app like iBrevery or other brevery dot brevery or whatever some kind of an, a brevery app i don't want to seem to be endorsing one that's just no, one you're that clearly i clearly not <laughs> right exactly <laughs> clearly not um but uh but anyway um the psalms are meant to be prayed so mm-hmm. as much as we have been gaining that's so right. much i think intellectual formation here that for me has been enriching to my prayer and the two i think have been really complementary to each other so thank you for that and listeners i would encourage you to find ways to pray the psalms as you're listening to this season well praise god that that you could not have set up what i wanted to say first better. Awesome. Um, and I was actually, even as you were doing the intro, I was trying to think of how do I segue into what I want to say first. Um, but this is actually perfect. I want to begin actually with a quote from um, St. Basil the Great, everybody's favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he was uh, one of the, the patristics. I, I want to say like 300s. He was, he was early, right? Yeah, Basil was the father of the church. Yeah, for sure. But he talks about the Psalms and he actually, he said something really akin to what you just said. Cool. And I just want to start with this because again, just big picture view. I think this is important for, for how do we, there's what the Psalms are doing. There's sort of the narrative form and the structure and all the mechanics and stuff. But then there's what, what do we do with it? What, so what to us? And um, what Basil says is this. He says, when indeed the Holy Spirit saw that the human race was guided only with difficulty toward virtue. In other words, we stink. And that because of our inclination towards pleasure, we were neglectful of an upright life. So what did he do? The delight of melancholy, he mingled with the doctrines so that by the pleasantness and softness of the sound heard, we might receive without perceiving the benefit of the words, just like wise physicians who, when giving the fastidious and rather bitter drugs to drink, they frequently smear the cup with honey. And therefore he devised for us these harmonious melodies of the Psalms that they who are children in age or even those who are youthful in disposition might to all appearances be chanting, but in reality become trained in the soul. For never has any one of the many indifferent persons gone away easily holding in mind either an apostolic or a prophetic message, but they do chant the words of the Psalms, even in their homes. And they spread them around in the marketplace. And if perchance someone becomes exceedingly wrathful, when he begins to be soothed by the psalm, he departs with his wrath from his soul immediately and is lulled to sleep by the means of the melody. Which I thought was really beautiful. This idea that because the psalms are meant to be kind of like earworms. I struggle with that every week for some reason. Get in there and stick with it. Yeah, they stick in there. And so when, and, and I think many of us have experienced like coming away from mass or something and we're just kind of humming a psalm later on during the day or like, you know, cleaning the dishes. Sometimes I'll just hum psalms I've heard. Um, and, and again, what Basil is saying is what we don't realize explicitly is that we're being trained in doctrine. God is training us in the ways of virtue, although we're just kind of humming a hymn or humming a tune in the back of our head, which is like a physician who puts, you know, smears the cup of medicine with honey so it tastes sweet. Um, In a way that just reading the apostolic fathers or reading the letters or reading Paul's epistles or something like that doesn't, doesn't have the same kind of mechanics, which is just beautiful. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So with, you know, with the Psalm that's sung over and over again, that truth, which God has to teach us can be 
digested, can be remembered and kind of called to mind again, which I just think is a, is a, a cool insight. Because again, this, there is the mechanics of the Psalms, but then there's the way that we're meant to experience them. And there is a story here, but it is, there's a pedagogy, there's a teaching that we're meant to walk away from. So I think what this holds for us, both as, as teachers and students of the Psalms and the scriptures in general, is really just to keep in mind the fact that we, as we explore these things, as we expound on the parts of the Psalms and their structure and their content, we have to always be praying to God to open ourselves and training the people around us to be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit in this unique way, right? I mean, I think that's the job. And that's what you're saying that you're doing during Lent, which praise be to God for that. Yeah. Because they're less intimidating, I guess, is the idea. And Basil would say rightly so. So um, to kind of get into it, as we said before, the Psalms are arranged in this five-part structure, right? Which we always have to keep in mind. And remember, this isn't a modern designation. This isn't something that somebody kind of did recently. It exists in the book itself, in the Psalter itself. So... Apparently, the last person or persons who, not who wrote the Psalms, those were written over the course of salvation history, but and whoever... written pl- is a bit of a... Those <laughs> yeah, were de- that's a good point. We were just talking before we started the show about the notion of oral history and yeah. the way that Spaceballs relates to Star Wars, which is to say that sort of you, you can only understand a sort of satire of a thing if you understand the if thing understand itself. understand the thing right, itself, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well or parody, I suppose. But, um, but uh, th- when you say the Psalms were written, I think it's helpful to say the Psalms sort of were composed or developed over a period of time by they which They come this is a, to us yeah, mm-hmm. in one way or another. It's not as if, you yeah. know, over a period of time, different people are sitting down opening up a Google, a Google Doc called Psalms and then adding their <laughs> contribution. Although that would be handy. Yeah, it's it a would. handy way to uh-huh. do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so that being said, uh, yeah, whoever compiled them mm-hmm. at the end wanted them read this way, wanted them presented to us this way. And so there's these five books and each of them end with this beautiful doxology of, of praise or blessing to the Lord, which is this interesting feature. But two things I want to just recap really quick, two quick points. The first two books, so again, books meaning these chunks of Psalms, the first two books of the Psalter contain this really high concentration of Psalms attributed to David, mm-hmm. their Davidic Psalms, either written or composed by David or in honor of David or something like that, which again is not coincidental. So that's point number one. And the other thing is we also saw that if we look at Psalm 2 and Psalm 72, kind of the bookends of the first two books, there's this large focus on the kingdom and the king. Because the the uh, Psalm 2 is for the coronation of David and Psalm 72 is for the coronation of his son. Presumably. Pope St. David II. Oh, Solomon. 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 You know That's Solomon. the one. Yeah, you know. I do, with all know. his wisdom, cutting babies in half and whatnot. Oh, my. Yeah, and, and Solomon is always remembered for his wisdom. Yeah, maybe right. cutting babies. But he's always... Solomon, re- just if you don't know, Solomon, two ladies come to Solomon and they each claim a baby and Solomon says, well, cut the baby in half and then what happens after that? Someone's like, no, I'd rather I'd, give the baby to her and he's like, rather well, than that must be your baby. baby. <laughs> yeah, which... I, I don't, okay, here is the, I don't want to get into this th- whole thing about Solomon. We're doing it now. Solomon's a train wreck. Yeah. He is not, a, he does, he, he begins. And he has like a zillion wives, but the wives you said are for political alliances, so we shouldn't read too much into well, that. I, I, I think we absolutely should. I mean, if, if anything, it's, it's almost worse. Oh. I don't know if it could be worse. There's multiple layers of sin. I believe me, what I was not trying to say is to dismiss the sin. If anything, it's a deeper sin because it's not just, oh, I'm trying to fulfill this pleasure thing, but I'm deeply defying God's sovereignty over the Davidic kingdom. Yeah. So again, lots of levels to that, but he shows himself to be a train wreck. He shows himself to be utterly unfaithful. He shows himself to be unwise. So I always read that story with a bit of a skeptical eye. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I get what kind of the teaching tool thing, but I don't know. Solomon needs to sort of be, be seen through the lens of what Solomon becomes in a certain sense. But the, the, the reason that's important is that these books are celebrating God's kingdom as a sacrament. And that's a small S, I suppose, a mm-hmm. small S sacrament. I've, I was, I, I love, there's a, a few different books and podcasts that are made by, by Protestant scholars that I really, really love, especially on the Psalms. And one of the things I noticed is that I think if you don't have a Catholic ethos or a Catholic theological understanding, there's only so far you can get in the Psalms. Mm. Because if those first two books are really highlighting this concept of the kingdom, not just as a political manifestation, but as God's sovereignty revealed physically, tangibly on earth, which is sacramental, you're not going to feel the weight of its loss, which is what book three is all about. And if you only if, if you don't have a sacramental lens to see the physical manifestation of God's presence among us, like we do in the sacraments, like we do in the Eucharist, we're going to miss something about what the loss of the kingdom actually means. Because the loss of the temple and the loss of the kingdom is the equivalent of losing every 
I don't know what article to put, using, losing all of the Eucharist all over the world all at once, that the Eucharist no longer exists anywhere. That's the equivalent of losing the Davidic kingdom and losing the temple. But again, if you don't have a sacramental mindset, I don't think you can feel as much the weight of that. Does that make sense? Losing both the Eucharist, every host in every tabernacle in all the world, and also the priesthood by which it would By be which it is confected, yeah. yeah. Which, again, I don't know the mechanics of that. Right. And actually, I, I, as I say that, one of the things, and we're going to get into this more next week. So this week is, is the book three reckoning with the loss of that reality. And mm-hmm. what do we do? And as book three reckons with the, the devastation of losing it, Next week in book four, it's going to deal with, okay, okay, now what do we do? We have lost it. How do we move forward? How do we live? And to be honest with you, and again, I know this is an analogy and it's weak and I don't, I'm not making any kind of political statement or anything like that. But during the whole COVID thing, when everything shut down, I, in my own prayer life, was spending a whole lot of time in book three and book four of the Psalms because it was this moment where all of a sudden as a Catholic, I didn't have access to the sacraments anymore. It's not like the Eucharist didn't exist anymore, but I couldn't access it. I couldn't go to mass. I couldn't go to confession for a while. I couldn't go to adoration. I didn't have access to any of that stuff. And so the question as a Catholic is, well, what do we do? We don't have the normal things that we do in Catholic life. We don't have the normal liturgy and trappings and rituals and the stuff that makes us Catholic. So what do we do without that? And I turn to these parts of the Psalms, which is Israel trying to reckon with, okay, what do we do without a temple? What do we do without this visible, physical manifestation of God's presence? Is God still there? Is he still king? And that's what these books are wrestling over. Right. So there's, that, that's the closest analogy, at least in my life, of, like, okay, what do I do now? And if yeah. you remember, there's a whole lot of Catholics, and maybe rightly so, I don't know, who kind of flipped out, and they're like, what do we do if we can't go to Mass? And you know, right. I, there, there was a lot of emotions, rightly so, mm-hmm. which are manifest in the Psalms. Yeah. But what we come back to is okay, do I, can I, I I taught my kids the, uh, how to make a spiritual communion during that time, which is not nothing. You know what I mean? There's still, God is still there. He's still present, which again, that's the question the Psalms are dealing with here. It strikes me that the apostles must've taken a great deal or ought to have taken a great deal of consolation in the Psalms after the crucifixion of the Lord, right? So after the Lord is crucified. They're kind of boneheads though. Yeah. So I I hope they did. I hope they did. People tend to say that, but I mean, they're the the apostles of the church for goodness sake. So. Come on now. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. But I mean, hopefully. But I mean, Peter maybe didn't, right? Because we see that he's... No, he probably did. But, I, I um, hope he, We can hope. We can but hope. I, right? but in any way, if this, is the pa- if this story is the story that sort of patterns their worldview, then one thinks that the apostles must have had a great deal of consolation in the Psalms or a great deal yeah. of at least identification with the Psalms when the, after the crucifixion of the Lord and maybe in the period even between his resurrection and the Pentecost. Uh, Excuse that, me, after his ascension, between his ascension, ascension and Pentecost. I, I, I mean, like I said, I've never really thought about that, but that's a great reflection. I mean, that if if you consider that the apostles were well-trained Jewish young men mm-hmm. or men, right. whatever their age, that's how you would imagine that the Jews were trained to think. Right. And that's what the Psalms are doing. They're like, oh, and actually, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because when in book four, it's going to ask the question, okay, was there a time that God's presence wasn't among us before? Right. Was there a time? Is there a precedent for this historically? And so book four is going to be all about the Exodus period uh-huh. when God first revealed himself physically. So yeah, as a, as a good Jew, you would go back and say, wow, is there a precedent for this? Is there any time where we felt something like this before? And yeah, yeah. perhaps they went back to, to this part of the Psalms. I hope so. All right. So all that being said, so again, I just want to keep in mind, I can't, I don't think it's possible to overstress the weight of the kingdom. And and again, when we talk about the kingdom, you can't separate that from the temple. Temple, mm-hmm. kingdom, king, all three of those things go together. Um, so the presence of God in the temple, this sign for us is the visible manifestation of God. Because and God gave king, us his king. Give us a king, God. Exactly. Israel, yeah. But what but what becomes clear, and this is where there's a misunderstanding sometimes, God's intent for Israel was always to have a king. Mm-hmm. And when we, we get King Saul, remember there's a moment where Samuel, who I think is the last of the, the judges, Samuel is like, no, you don't want a king. King's a really bad idea. They're going to send your sons off to war. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to overtax you. You don't want a king. It's a bad idea. But if you read carefully the story of salvation history, Deuteronomy makes it clear. God says, when you have a king, this is what the king is supposed to be like. So it's not as if there's a point in salvation history where they move on. We're like, well, God used to be our king, but now we got this chump named Saul. It's that the king was always designed. And and the analogy for this, and again, forgive me for the analogy. There was a time in my life that I 
really, really loved Jesus, and I really loved the idea of fellowship with other followers of Jesus, but I thought the church was a cumbersome Mm add-on. And I was like, well, Jesus is awesome, but then we got this church. And I think it's easy to sometimes view the kingdom that way. Like, there's this time in, like, the Exodus where God was leading the people, but then they got a king, and then they got hierarchy. Oh, all I need is Jesus. Well, indeed, this is the the body of Christ is the communion of the baptized. Those things are inseparable for us. Right. And the church is not an accident. Right. The kingdom of David is not an accident. Yeah, right. The church exists by divine ordinance, and so did the Davidic kingdom. Exactly. I mean, really, it was understanding the Davidic kingdom that made me appreciate the church. Because God doesn't really change all that much. It just looks different. Cool. So uh, book three, again, the focus is the loss of that. And so um, we see the rise of the sort of unified kingdom under David, passed down to his son Solomon. But then as, so, you know, we have the, the coronation of Solomon at the end of two... Psalm 2, presumably Solomon's coronation of his son Rehoboam at the end of chapter 72, or or Psalm 72. But if you know the story, you know that that's the moment everything turns sour. That's the moment that there is a massive civil war in the kingdom, that there's a divide, that 10 of the tribes break off and they found their own kingdom to go down and remain in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of bloodshed, there's a lot of hurt, and the body it's not the body of Jesus hasn't been incarnate yet, but God's people divide. They are broken. And so you should read, you know, Psalm 2 with this like fanfare, like, oh, cool. That's awesome. And in the same sense, read Psalm 72 with like, oh, this is ominous. Yeah. And it talks about all these things that the king is supposed to do, all these things that he's supposed to be like justice and righteousness and care for the poor and all these things. But then if we remember the story, remember, do you remember Rehoboam's story at all? It's, you probably, it's probably somewhere deep in your memory bank. So Solomon's son, Solomon is told by the prophet, actually, I think it's, uh, is it, I think it's Nathan. I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm not even kidding. No, I, was I say, know, you know what Because that's the name about. of a prophet that I know from that period. <laughs> There's a prophet. Right. Um, and I think it was Nathan, but basically he is told, Solomon is told, because of your great sin and because you have not been what you're supposed to be, you've not lived out the icon of God that you were meant to do, you're not going to be punished exactly. You will be, but it's going to be your son. Your son will have the kingdom stripped from him. Yeah. And as a father, we're both fathers, to imagine something that we've done, having to play itself out in the light of life of our kids, that's a pretty painful thing. Yeah. And so Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, is given this opportunity. And if you remember, there's the story, I think it's in Second Samuel, something like that, where he is told by this other prophet, whose name is not Nathan. It's another prophet he meets out in the wilderness. He's like, hey, your kingdom is going to be divided. God's taking this. He's putting it in the hands of this guy named Jeroboam. He's going to be steward over this. But you have a choice. And you get to decide, are you going to be like your father Solomon, or are you going to be the kind of king that God wants you to be? Right. Because this punishment is not inevitable. And so he goes and takes counsel first with these wise elders in Israel. And he's like, what do you guys think I should do? And they're like, don't be like your dad. Your dad was a chump. Yeah. Be righteous. Be generous. Be, you know, live out the justice and righteousness that God calls you to be. Be generous to the people. Be forgiving. Be all, be all these things you're supposed to be. And he's like, okay, okay. And then he goes and hangs out with like his college buddies. You remember this? And they're like, what? That's crazy. Like, you should be tougher than your father ever was. And like, who are they to tell you? And if my, you know, if your father put this kind of a burden on them, you should do 10 times that much. And he comes back and he's like, I'm going to go with my buddies. Like, I'm going to be way harder than my dad was. And, you know, God's like, okay, you had a choice. And that's, again, what should be spinning through your mind as you're reading Psalm 72, hoping and praying for this reality of the king yeah. and knowing how he becomes. And yeah. so there's a civil war. So there's, you know, all sorts of, of loss. And then eventually the northern kingdom is obliterated by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom doesn't last for that much longer before they're taken over by the Babylonians. The walls fall. The temple is burned and all is lost, right? And so these voices... Um, these voices of this darkness that's on the horizon, in a certain sense, they're present in book one and two, right? But they're all concentrated in book three. So there's, there's, you know, most of the Davidic Psalms are in book one and two, but this arrangement, again, it's really intentional. And I want us to see that um, by looking kind of at the bookends, we can kind of fill in the gaps, right? So both the bookends of the Psalms are going to reflect this Jewish attempt to wrestle with this idea of exile. Because again, it's not just this stinks, this is hard, we don't like suffering. It's a question of what does this say about God? And what does it say about God's relationship to us? Is he really God? Is he really there? Are we really the chosen people? Again, don't mistake this section as just suffering stinks. It's really hard. People are out to get me. It's God's integrity on the line. And that's what the Psalms are going to wrestle with. So um, I want to revisit just quickly this editorial note 
that the psalmist kind of gives us at the end. And if you look at the end of Psalm 72, which is, again, the last psalm of book one and two, uh-huh. it says in uh, Psalm 72, verse 20, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Bum, bum, bum. And it, it really is this ominous note that the editors kind of kind of insert there. So this is a big deal. Um, but again, it's not totally the end of the Davidic Psalms. They're, right. they're going to come back. And there's going to be a, a little bit more even in, in book three. There's clusters later, are, later on. But the point is it's meant to end on this ominous note. Yeah. And so what's interesting about this from a Christian perspective is that even though right now things look really grim, the Davidic kingdom's gone, when we get to book five in a couple of weeks, all of the Davidic Psalms are going to mysteriously reappear. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a, a, a glut of them show up, pointing towards this new kingdom, oh, which is yet to come, which kind of promissory way, in a kind uh, of promissory, in a promissory way. way, which remember, even for the editors and the compilers of this, they haven't seen any of that yet. Right. So there's this profound hopefulness in something that is yet unseen yeah. that the whole of this altar ends with. Which That's again, cool. It's like a piece of music how yes. themes might begin and then come back later and be yes. played with and toyed with and then come back in a sort of. That's really Absolutely right. You know, th- themes in a piece of music can be redeemed even. Yeah. So that's yeah, very cool. That's right. Yeah. And it's not just the kingship, the, the, the themes of temple priesthood, yeah. sacrifice, all of that show up back in book five. Cool. So the whole Psalter kind of closes with a bang, which is kind of cool. Um, so for, for now, I want to look at, again, this kind of, this kind of bookend, this, this moment of trauma. So again, if the kingdom is the sacrament of God's presence on earth, then what does its collapse mean practically? Like, what does it mean for us in day to day? Does it seem to suggest that God has withdrawn his presence? Yeah. He's withdrawn his physical presence in a certain sense. But if he's withdrawn his physical presence, what does it mean about where he is? Do you remember the book of Ezekiel? Yeah, a little bit. Dry bones. Yeah, the dry bones. Right. Those bones, those bones, those dry bones. Okay. In, in many of the prophets, there's sort of an inaugural vision that'll sort of set the scene for the rest of the book or set the, the tone. Um, as Isaiah, I remember he's in the throne room of God with the burning charcoals touched to his lips. Yeah. In Ezekiel, the first vision, so Ezekiel is... Um, a prophet who's writing from the Babylonian exile around this time, right? Having been taken from Jerusalem, everything is lost. Things are bad. It's, it's the Bob Marley song by the rivers of Babylon. We, we, where we sat down and wept when we remembered. Simon. Yeah. Um, my seminarians will always start singing that automatically. It's a wonderful cue. Oh, and it wow. gives me hope for this generation. Yeah. That they're still singing. It. Anyway. Um, but Ezekiel sees as he's sitting by the river Chabar up in Babylon, present day Iraq, his inaugural vision of God is burning chariot wheels. Right. Which is implying, hey, the presence of God, yes, it was made physically manifest in that way because that's how God chose to do it. But God's presence isn't bound to a particular location. It's not, it's not tied. It's mobile. God can be on wheels. That's okay. Because remember, in the ancient world, gods and deities were always tied with geographic locations. And this is why it matters in the book of Exodus when God was performing the plagues on the Egyptian gods. Yeah. The god of the Nile was turned to blood, but it had to happen at the Nile because they're geographically tied. And if you're Babylon and you believe in the sort of pagan um, religious sense of the Babylonians, you think if you destroy the temple, you've killed their God. Right. And their God is done. And what Yahweh is showing to Ezekiel is, no, that's not even close to true. Yeah. You don't see me in the same way, but God's presence is there. This is why, again, at the, at the other end of this story, when Jesus becomes incarnate, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary at the beginning of Matthew, he says his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God is with us, which yeah. is an answer to this very ancient question. Yeah. If we can't see him, is he really there anymore? Um, and again, I think it's easy to us for, to forget as moderns the, the impact of the destruction of the temple and the collapse of the kingdom, right? Um, because I think we live in a kind of and kind of pseudo-Gnosticism, right? Yeah. That we believe in the spiritual realities. And, and it's good that there's some physical stuff, but, but really it's the spiritual that's more important. And that's not true for the Jew. It's not really true in reality, right? Because we're body and soul. We're physical and spiritual, right? God, God loves both and he works with both. And so again, he, he respects Israel's wrestling with the loss of those things. So um, there's a sincere wrestling. And it, it's it, the Psalms I love... I love book three because it encourages us to be frustrated. It encourages us. We don't deal with the the exact same thing, but it gives us, it's meant to give us permission to wrestle with these questions, to wrestle with our struggles. Like, God, I don't see you in this situation. I'm really frustrated by this. I don't understand why, you know, these people or this pastor or whatever is doing these things. And what does it say about you if this reality is happening in the church? Where are you? And again, there's precedent. 
the yeah. story of the Psalms says, okay, there's room for that question in salvation history. So I want to turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is often called the wisdom Psalm mm-hmm. um, because what it's, again, what it's attempting to do is wrestle with what's, what, with what's called theodicy. And theodicy means God's justice, right? Where's God's justice? So God's goodness is always assumed in the sort of Jewish mind. And so is his justice. But the problem for the Jew really isn't a theological one as much as it is an experiential one. And this is kind of beautiful in sort of the Jewish mindset. Essentially, the psalmist is saying, I know these things to be true, right? There's some, there's some a priori's. God is good. I know that's true. I know that God is just. And so if I know those things, why then to the wicked prosper in Which this is world? such a, I mean, the question of evil, which is the question of theodicy, how yes, is it exactly. that God is good when evil exists? Yes. Is, it's a fa- it's but that's cool. not the question of theodicy. Okay. It's not a question of whether God is good. It okay. seems to me, in my limited understanding, that the psalmist takes for granted that. Okay. And that's where the wrestling comes in, because okay. I think for us, it's a zero-sum game for us sometimes. Right. Either this is true or this is true. Right. But they can't both be true. Right. And for the psalmist, he says, I know this is true, so how but on this. earth can this be held in tension as well? Okay. How do these both work together? Okay. Does that, it, it's it a, does. It's a subtle nuance, but, yeah, but that right. seems to be the pre- the presumption of yeah, the Yeah, maybe I've sort of modernized the question almost in a little bit. And maybe, bit. I'm, maybe no, I'm but in a certain way, doing it, the opposite. Yeah, no, okay, go ahead. But that seems to, yeah, that seems to be the wrestling. So let's read this together real quick. Just at least a couple of verses. So truly God is good to the upright. Again, this is his taking for granted. Here's what I know. I know God is good to the upright. I know that's true. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Why? Because my steps had well nigh slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, right? So what we have here is is this voice beginning book three to allow Israel living in exile to say, hey, wait a second, we are God's chosen people. We're his segula. He's made this covenant with us. He made this covenant with our father Abraham. So why then has he given us over into pagan hands? These people who worship other gods, these people who are violent, these people who are cruel, these people who torture their victims in captivity. Why do the wicked prosper? And why does the nation of Assyria, who is our enemy, appear to be blessed by God as an empire? Because to be victorious means you're getting blessed, or at least that was the the assumption. So why does God seem to be on the side of the Babylonians instead of ours? And he makes this observation. Look at verse 4. This observation about the wicked. They have no pangs. Their bodies are sleek and sound, or sound and sleek. They are not in trouble like other men are. They are not stricken like other men, like us. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Isn't that a powerful line? Yeah. This is what I mean. I said this a couple of weeks ago where the Psalms assume a lot of imagination on our point. Yeah. They, he could just say, people are mean, but he doesn't say that. He wants to evoke something in you. He wants you to feel this. Their eyes swell out with fatness. They were greedy. It means the same thing, but they, it's a very different sense. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I really, that's a really powerful line to me. Their tongue struts through the earth. I think we all know people whose tongue kind of struts through social media or Twitter or something, right? Um, verse 13, it says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been stricken and chastened every morning, right? So not only in other words, are the wicked prospering, but the just, the ones who seek God, who choose to be close to him, they seem to be struck down. They're suffering. And again, this only, and again, maybe it's a problem of modernity, but I think our minds are too small, or we, we treat our minds as being too small, because again, we only have room for one. Either God is good and just, and there's punishment for the wicked, or he's not. And, you know, something's wrong, and I guess I had the world wrong. The allowance for wrestling implies that you can hold both to be true. This is the truth, and this is my experience, and I can wrestle because they don't make sense. But if we just want to cancel one or the other out, which I feel like we do this all the time, either like, well, they're not real, they're going to get their comeuppance eventually. Like, you know, it's it's all going to kind of wash out, and God really sees and knows, which is true. No, they're not. Everything's great for them. Everything really seems great. Right. That's not an illusion. And so he says, verse 15, if I had said, again, this is where the turn in the argument comes. If I had said, I will speak thus. I would have been untrue to the generation of my children. I would have been untrue 
to the generation of thy children, God. So the psalmist recognizes in verse 15 that I, I can't agree with what people are saying. Like, I can't, I can't just consent to that. I can't say that God is ignorant. I can't say that there is no real knowledge in the Most High. I can't say that this whole image I had of God was false, right? Which again, I think that's our temptation. He knows those things to be untrue, but yet there's the reality, Yet there's the reality. And again, the Psalms are teaching us how to actually wrestle because we don't like wrestling. We want to cancel one or the other out. So in other words, his experience is not matching up to the truth, the good to the upright, the just. What he's experiencing is the opposite, which is the prospering of the wicked. And then comes verse 16. He says, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, as it might seem to us too. Until what? Seemed wearisome. This is hard, in other words. I don't know how to reconcile these things. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. And truly thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. You awake and you despise their phantoms. So the psalmist comes to a realization about the end, the telos of the wicked. And where does he come to the realization? In the sanctuary of God. (laughs) Yeah. So it happens in the sanctuary. So he says, it seemed a wearisome test. This seems too hard until I went to the sanctuary. And this is also frustrating. And then I went to pray. Yeah. And then it was clear to me. But, but, but it's not as easy as that. Because again, where does the psalmist go? To the sanctuary. Oh, but only, um, only a priest can go into the sanctuary and only on certain date. If I remember right from a previous season of Sunday school, only a priest can go into the sanctuary and only maybe a few times in his life. And? Yeah, so there, there's two things. You're, you're absolutely right. You're 100% right. But yes. you're not seeing the deeper problem. Oh. So in other words, there's oh, levels there's of... there's no presence of God. So even it, it, what you said is true. But this is a Psalm of Asaph, and Asaph is from the Levitical period. So back Grant. for Asaph, it yes. was true. For but Asaph the people is who true. are singing it, they don't have a sanctuary of right. God. And so there's two levels of problems. Not only do I not really have access to the sanctuary, even if I did, the sanctuary is gone. So what is the psalmist saying? Well, there, there's a couple levels. What he means by that, for an Israelite... Entrance, and we see this in extra biblical writings, entrance into the sanctuary, most often referred to liturgical prayer, right? They can't go into the Holy of Holies. Oh, I went to pray in the the temple. Which is exactly what you said. Right, it is. Um, Because I knew a lot of that, but I wanted to let you uh, expound it. Yeah, But but it's true. But, But again, there's still a problem because, again, for the compilers and for the people who are praying these this things. This is evocative of a memory that, of a thing we used to have, but we don't have, have it anymore. We don't have. So the temple was a place of pilgrimage, right? Uh-huh. So people didn't stop by the temple to just kind of yeah, qu- make a quick visit. Yeah, sounds like I stopped by the Adoration Chapel, honestly. Yes, and that's, that's how it sounds to us, but that's not right. how it yeah. works. Picture throngs of Israelites going up to the temple in pilgrimage to participate in the liturgical worship, right? right? So what's the point of this for the psalmist? It's in the liturgy, and this is the point of it for us too. It's in the liturgy that we see things for what they are. It's in the liturgy that the psalmist is able to see reality for reality. Yeah. Now, again, something that's interesting is that because the psalms are being used by a community in exile yeah. who wouldn't have access to the temple, how, how, do you, how do you do this? And again, this is why I brought up Ezekiel before. Yeah. Because the prophet Ezekiel shows that God comes to the people in exile and sanctuaries with them there. He, he literally, in the, in the Greek, the Septuagint, he tabernacles among them. This is what John is riffing on in the Gospel of John, right? There was a tabernacle in Jerusalem, but once that's gone, God, what does God do? He comes in tabernacles in Babylon. Yeah. He tabernacles among us. So for the exiles, the sanctuary... Really, it's the first synagogues, and this is where the synagogue tradition comes from, right? And in the synagogue tradition, which is, you know, what, what kind of comes out of this time period, you have Israel realizing, oh, shoot, we don't have the temple anymore. We don't have God's presence physically. We don't have—there are priests, but there's nothing for the priests to do. So there's not really priests good. Because remember, priests weren't really the teachers. We think of our priests, right. and our, our priests in the New Covenant— have the charisms of, of what it teaching governance and sanctification. Is yeah. They're not a only a sacrificing priest. Exactly. Right, but in the yeah. old Testament, they're sacrificing priests. Yeah. They're not teachers. And rabbis, so, if I remember correctly from an earlier episode, oh, did we, talk season, about we talked about rabbis having a more of a teaching and also pa- pastoral care obligation, but out of necessity, right? Because we don't have anything else. And yeah. so without the temple, without the kingdom, without the priesthood, without the sacrifice, they said, well, what do we have left? All we have left is the Torah. Right. That's what God left. And that's not nothing. Yeah. So they say, we will synagogos. We will gather around the Torah. Yeah. And we need people to teach us. We need people to guide us and walk us through this. So yeah. um, this is what we have. So it's not the temple anymore, but there's still a liturgy. There's still a sanctuary reality. And so the point is, 
um, the psalmist enters into this sort of a sanctuary. And at this point, it's the presence of the word of God. And there's an understanding that that's still God's presence, right? And I go into that and it's there. And this is good for us as people who are trying to train ourselves to read the Psalms rightly. It's when we go into the word of God, in the liturgy, in these realities that we see things for what they are. Yeah. Um, There's a a Protestant commentator whose books I really, really like. His name is Gordon Wenham. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, I can't remember where he teaches, but he makes a really interesting point about this the concept that that has stuck with me for years. He has a commentary on the book of Numbers. Believe it or not, it's a great commentary on Numbers if you're ever looking for one. But he's talking about all the priestly functions that are kind of set up for the Levites in that book. There's a lot of, even more than Leviticus, Numbers has like what the Levites are supposed to do. And he says basically that for the ancient Israelites, the idea, and again, this is a Protestant, so take it for what you will. For the ancient Israelites, he says, the idea of liturgy was so ingrained in their everyday life that they, when they went to worship in the temple, they actually brought all of the stuff of life with them. They brought their mm. grain and their cabbage and their flocks and their mm. sheep and their wine, oil, and bread, mm. right? Because for them, there was always this clean interflow between worship and life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, okay, the sanctuary is over here, and then my regular life is over here. Right. In a way that, quite frankly, and I'm not disparaging anything because I do it. I don't, my tithe from my church comes out of my direct deposit and my bank account. Yeah. And there's no sense when the the basket comes around. Like I'm not, I don't know what chunk of my paycheck goes in, what, what first bank chooses. It's, it's an abstraction all of a sudden, which is different than like putting a goat in the basket, right. Or putting the first of the bread that I baked from the barley that just came out of the field in my backyard in the basket. There's, there's something very separate for me for that. And I'm not sure what to do with that. But in the ancient world, it's it's all intended to to be one. Life, worship, it all flows together. And he he goes on to talk about how liturgy shapes the Israelite mindset from from how they thought about time to space to colors to architecture to literally everything. The, the, and, and we have this in the Catholic world, right? There are certain colors associated with liturgical seasons. We sing different songs. You know, if you're a priest, maybe more so. But I think for a lot of us lay people, it, it just kind of becomes a distant thing. Yeah. But for the Israelites, it, it affects everything. Yeah. So what Wenham says, and again, he's writing this book probably in the 80s or 90s maybe. He said that the only thing that comes close to the liturgical cycle of the Old Testament in modern times is perhaps television. And then he just moves mm. on. He goes on to, to another topic. And I've, I've always been, str- and again, we're talking about 80s or 90s or something. So there's no phones or anything yet. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had the telephone, but, right. <laughs> but I think the point he's trying to raise is that at least in his experience, nothing was more influential for most people in the way that they shape their worldview, oh. how they dress, how they talk, the language that they use, yeah. the TV or maybe right. movies. And it's a really important point. And I'm not sure, you know, how do you translate that into 2023? But the more I thought about that. I mean, think of it, J.D., and I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, did you not kind of I, – I remember the character in the movie that I cut my hair after as I was in high school. And I, I don't even know if I was conscious of it, but I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, I was trying to be Owen Wilson in Bottle Rocket. Like, that's exactly that's what I was doing. Movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. And I talked like him and I tried to dress like – and or, you know – this is, I'm, I'm being, I mean, this is a little embarrassing, but think of the ways in which like, I'm going to dress a certain way because Ross on friends dresses that way or whatever that's it is. That's who you pick? No, that's, that's just who you pick. It's just what came to mind. Oh my gosh. Anyway, the point is how, the point is for Wenham and for us, what are all the alternative liturgies in our life? What mm-hmm. are the things that actually are, are not, I don't even want to say counter liturgy, right? but the alternative liturgy, because we're going to be liturgically shaped by something. We're going to affect, let something affect colors and time and dress yeah. and language and everything else. Whether TV or liturgy, I'm having ideas put in my head yeah. or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, yeah. um, which is just an interesting thought Yeah, because I don't know if that's my experience. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not sure that I go to mass and I see the world differently after I come out. I want to, I long for that. I pray for that. Or at least I want to long for it, I guess. Right. But that's not what changes the way I speak. It's not the way that affects my language and my dress. You know, I'm always wearing green on a Sunday in June. Right, right. You know, that's, that's a silly. Re- anyway, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It's important. I think no, it's important yeah, I because this, we can't take the psalmist's words as a, a pious, like, oh, isn't that a pious thing to say? I went to mass and then I understood everything. Right. No, I mean, he's got a real struggle. Like, my beloved person in my life is is suffering and is sick and has cancer and I don't understand. God, I believed in you and I've I've lived my life in this way and this person is suffering. What do I do? And then I went to mass and I and, and the thing about the psalmist is that he doesn't have all the answers. 
he just comes out with a different perspective. Right. He comes out with a different way of, of sort of wrestling with those things. Look at verse right. 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant, like a beast toward thee, talking to God. Nevertheless, I'm continually with thee, and thou dost hold my right hand. Thou dost guide me with thy counsel, and afterward thou wilt receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing upon earth that I desire besides thee. So the psalmist enters into worship. He sees things for what they are, and then he comes back out. But again, what's interesting is the psalmist sees the end of the wicked, but he still doesn't see why they prosper in the present life. Yeah. He doesn't get the full why. So the answer he receives, even in worship, is in a sense incomplete. And that's important for setting, because remember, this is all setting the stage for book three. Yeah. For the way in which we deal with exile. And it would be disingenuous for book three to begin with some easy answer. Oh, this yeah. is why suffering happens. This right. is why the kingdom was lost. And we know the re- there are reasons. We know the idolatry and the, all the stuff. But it's sufficient for the psalmist to lead him to a kind of repentance where he sees God as being with him at all times, even though he feels like he's struck down and chastened every morning, as he says. And so what he sees in the sanctuary, he sees the end of the wicked and it helps him to understand in some way this problem of God's justice, that God will in the end enact justice. And he also comes away with the sense that God is with me, that I can't walk away from him because he says in verse 25, right? Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's nothing upon earth that I desire. So at the end of the day, when all is said and done, even in his loss, God is still with him. So Again, Psalm 73 serves as this introduction to take us into the darkness of book three. And so Psalm 73 is sort of the preface. It's the prologue that you need to pray through book three sanely with, with understanding what the real questions are. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Oliveira, and I produce this show, Sunday School. There is so much to love about this podcast. Scott offers such refreshing insights about scripture. A lot of his insights have helped me feel more comfortable with the Bible, and I hope they've helped you too. If you enjoy listening to Sunday School as much as I do, I'd like to ask you to please consider becoming a paying subscriber to The Pillar. The support of paying subscribers makes projects like Sunday School possible. We have several subscription plans available, including one that's only $5 a month. If you're already a paying subscriber, you're awesome. And maybe you could consider gifting a subscription to someone else. For more information, visit PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. That's PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Thanks, guys. And we're back to continue our discussion of Book 3 of the Psalms. To kick things off, we've asked our own Ed Condon to read Psalm 89 which we'll talk about a little later in this episode. Take it away, Ed. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord with your faithfulness all round you, you rule the ragings of the sea, when its waves rise you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festial shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, your horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. 
I have found David my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected, you are full of wrath against your anointed, and you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls, you have laid his strongholds in ruins, all who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity... You have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. So I want to look really briefly at um, a couple psalms which speak to this lament and then close us out, and uh, the longing that Israel is meant to feel during this period in her history. And just if you if you guys want to go back later on, I think some of the best examples of these psalms of lament, I think 74, 77, 79, 80, and 88, they all really speak to this. And I'll say a word about 74 really quick, but look at how it begins. Oh God, um, again, uh, 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 this is a musical, a masculine is a, uh, a musical instrument of Asaph. Um, oh God, why dost thou cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? We're your people, right? Remember thy congregation, which thou have gotten of old, uh, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of thy heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where thou hast dwelt. Direct my steps to the perpetual ruins. What are the perpetual ruins? The, the temple. Because it's gone, right? Um, so it, it, these Psalms are meant to show the trauma again of Israel in the loss of the kingdom. Why is this such a traumatic experience? Because it's a sacrament. It's sacramental. It's not just, oh, it was really nice to have a kingdom. Yeah. It was designed to be the sacrament of God's presence on earth. So the temple is to be the sacrament of God's presence and the people of Israel specifically. And what Israel is meant to be to the world is what the temple is to Israel. Yeah. Um, and again, lots of things happen to cause this Solomon, Rehoboam, a lot, you know, the prophets speak continuously about all of the, the sin that brought with this. But the problem is when those two things are lost, right, the presence and the presence of God, um, the kingdom and the temple, there's something that's lost in our vision of God. There's something in our experience of God, right? We lose a sense of intimacy. And again, I, during COVID, I was happy to read the Psalms. But there's still a loss. There's some, you know, we sat in the living room and watched online mass and we relate to it. Even I, I can, yeah. 
we were always late to mass and we were late to online mass too. And it really made me mad. <laughs> um, but again, there was an intimacy that's lost, right? Which again is captured by this part of the Psalms. It's really important. But notice that these Psalms give a very personal, intimate experience of what has happened in the exile and the captivity. Um, they also contain these corporate hymns, right? So we see personal and communal mourning for the loss. It's not just me. It's that we have lost this. And both are significant, right? And they still are in the life of the church. And again, it, during COVID, because the only analogy I can think of, yeah, I was bummed out that I couldn't go to adoration. I couldn't go to mass. But there was also a we. Like, we yeah. can't be together. And that deserves mourning as well. Yeah. And I think there was, a, there was definitely a selfishness that I think I saw in a lot of us, myself included, during the whole COVID thing. Like, I want this. I need to be doing this. This is what I, where I want to be. How dare you keep this from me? Yeah. And not as much of the, man, but we ought to be together. It is good that we're actually together communally. Again, not to belabor that. Now what I want to do to kind of close us up, I want to look at the other bookmark, right? The end of this. Psalm 89, which we just heard from Ed at the, uh, right During before the break. The, after the break. Yeah. Yeah. And so the two key themes in Psalm 89 center on these two words that I just want to highlight, which are used all throughout the Psalm, right? So look at the very beginning. Psalm 89, verse one. I will sing of thy steadfast love forever, O Lord. My mouth will proclaim thy faithfulness to all thy generations. For thy steadfast love was established forever, and thy faithfulness as firm as the heavens. So these two words I want to point out are, in Hebrew, the word hased, hased, which in English you just do H-E-S-E-D, which usually means steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. Steadfast love can be kind of um, abstract, right? What it means is covenant faithfulness. In other words, God, you said you would do this, and I trust that you'll do it. Yeah. That's what it means. It's not just, oh, you're nice or you're, you're good. Paul uses this concept of righteousness, the righteousness of God yeah. in the New Testament. It's not just that God is righteous. He's good. It means that what he said he'll do, he'll do, yeah. even when it doesn't look like it, even when we can't see that. So chesed and then emet. Emet, E-M-E-T-H, which means faithfulness, right? And if you look in my Bible, J.D., so I've highlighted them all in different colors, but you can see how many times those terms yeah. show up, yeah. which is kind of a lot, right? Yeah. They are the focal themes of the Psalms. And these two words are really important because they're repeated here, right? But also all over the prophets. They're all over the Psalter. And they're used particularly by the prophets and the psalmist when the subject is human weakness and sin, we stink, we fall, we fall short. And the moment um, that the psalmist begins meditating on his sinfulness or his weakness is always when he recalls these two attributes of God. Yeah. I'm really weak, but you are hased and emet. You are these things, even though I'm these things. Yeah. And the idea, and again, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up on this. The, the place where these two terms come from originally in the story of salvation history, which again, regardless of when these Psalms are being composed or written, what the people of Israel are meant to recall and remember the first time, I think, the first time this word combination shows up is in the book of Exodus. Mm. And it's in Exodus 34. Do you have any, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you remember at all what's happening in Exodus 34? Uh, you Something know, real bad. The creation, Scott, if I may, of an idol, an idolatrous Indeed. bovine idol by the <laughs> Hebrew people waiting at the base of Mount Sinai for Moses to return with the tablets of the law. Yeah, that's right. The, the bovine, Can I the bovine say, apostasy. Bam. <laughs> well I mean, done, I kind of got that right. And that actually had, had previously happened. That, that ju I think that happens in 32, something yeah. like that. Moses comes down in 33. He's very angry, yeah. throws the tablets, and then 34, God tells him to make have new do new tablets. And again, remember what the people of Israel are doing. It's so, I think we've talked about this before. It's really easy to kind of abstractly villainize the Israelites. So like, oh, Moses went on the mountain. They didn't see him for a while. So they started worshiping a cow. Like right. that's not what happened. They believed, I mean, remember they're, they're coming from this polytheistic culture yeah. that they've lived in for hundreds of years, 400, which 400 years, which has informed their spirituality and they live in a world in which gods are always competing with each other. Yeah. And there's lots of possibilities for who you're going to give yourself to. And we're terrified of all of them. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's like, oh, well, I guess that God didn't really exist. There was that God who put to death all the Egyptian gods. He led us through the Red Sea. I guess that was all fake. It was all smoke and mirrors. Nobody's saying that. They're just saying, I don't know if I trust that God because I saw his, lead, his, his guy went up on that mountain and it caught on fire. And then there was lightning 
and he's dead. Therefore, that God is not to be trusted anymore. My son is five. And if we're watching a basketball game that's two teams we don't care about, like if it's if we're watching a basketball game and it's the Nuggets, he's going to cheer for the Nuggets, yep. whatever, invariably. Good. Good for him. But if we're watching a basketball game and it's two teams that he doesn't care about, he's, he'll say to me like, oh, dad, I'm cheering for the team with the white uniforms. And then the team with the blue uniforms will cheer and he'll... Think about it. And I could see his brain working and he'll hedge because he doesn't want to be wrong. And he'll say, I think I meant to say I'm cheering totally. for the blue uniforms, right? <laughs> totally. And then sometimes he'll say, I'm cheering for both. But no. he, he vacillates because he doesn't want totally. to be wrong, right? Totally. There's something totally. there. Totally. Yeah. And there's a protection in it, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I think the reason Israel is turning to Apis, this, this golden calf, is because they want protection from Yahweh. Right, exactly. Because Again, maybe the, I'm taking the, it too far. No, because the Yahweh team just got dunked on hard, they yes. think. And so yes. they're like... Well, I better I, maybe the Apis team's going to win, and I don't want to be wrong. But don't forget, if the if the Yahweh team is dunking on you, it means you're going to die. Right. You know, it's not just yeah. like oh, okay, I should cheer for the other team. It means there's consequence for me. And it's in 34 that yeah, like you said, Moses comes down, he breaks all the commandments. Who's the only person to break all the commandments at once? It's Moses. He breaks the commandments. <laughs> the stone tablets. Oh Have you ever heard God. that? Oh my gosh, that was terrible. You've never heard that before. No, of course okay. not. Well. Oh, what do you mean? Of course not. <laughs> You're a canon lawyer. Yeah, canon lawyers don't would not tell that joke. Oh, we have dark one. senses of humor. I have to tell you the truth. <laughs> All right, so he breaks the commandments. He flips out the the, um, and this is where God kind of steps in in chapter 34 and says, "You remember the whole story?" He's like, "I'm not going with you guys anymore. I'm mm-hmm. out." Which, in, in strangely enough, almost sounds like what Israel feared is coming true. Maybe this God is capricious. Maybe this God does not really care about us. Right. Because, again, I guess he's going to jet, which he tells to Moses, which we know is not true, right? But what, he, what, what is he asking of Moses? He's not trying to test Moses to see, well, okay, you know, if you, if you pass the test, then I'll stay with you. I'll still be your God. He's trying to make Moses into an intercessor. He wants Moses to be an intercessor more than he wants him to be a leader. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time that these words, to my knowledge, show up together. And it says in verse 6, I'm in chapter 34, verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, has said in emet, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and emet, steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps repeating it again and again. And so it's at this moment that God reveals something about himself, right? Yeah. Um, this verse actually challenges us to hold together God's faithfulness and his steadfast love and his chastisement Mm -hmm. and his punishment, they all kind of go together. And we know from here that Israel is going to go on to wander in the wilderness, which is, again, kind of a revelation of God's justice in his faithfulness and love. It's all together. And so it's not surprising that Psalm 89 returns repeatedly to these two attributes of God, right? Which were revealed in Israel's greatest moment of apostasy. I remember the ancient Jews, they viewed the golden calf as far worse than the original sin of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Because they should have really known better. Adam and Eve should have as well. Yeah. But I mean, this is a whole nother level. So um, the Exodus, and we'll get into more of this next time, the Exodus is going to be the framework for understanding this whole part of scripture, right? This yeah. whole part of salvation history. Yeah. And so Psalm 89 is this meditation on the glory of the Davidic kingdom as well as its collapse. And you can divide it into two parts. There's this call to remembrance. God is good. Again, we know these things to be true, beginning in creation to the Exodus, to the Davidic kingdom, giving to David. It remembers all the goodness of God to Israel. That's verse 1 through 37. And then the term comes in verse 37. And in verse 38, it says, but now thou hast cast off and rejected, which is talking about what? It's talking about the exile. You've cast us off and rejected us. Thou art full of wrath against thy anointed. Thou hast renounced thy covenant with thy servant. Thou hast defiled his crown in the dust. Thou hast breached his walls. And thou hast has laid his strongholds in ruins and all that passed by to spoil him again and again and again. It talks about all this stuff, recalling God's promise to David that your kingdom's going to last forever. It's not just saying, well, I guess we were wrong. I guess that was a mistaken philosophy that we followed. It's calling God to task. Yeah. It's saying, wait a second, you said this. Yeah. And this is not happening. Yeah. But then look at uh, verse 41, all that passed by to spoil him. Thou hast... Ex- exalted the right hand of his foes and, and has made his enemies rejoice. Yea, thou hast turned his back to the edge of the sword and thou hast made him stand in battle. You removed the scepter from his hand. That's the kingship. Right. Cut, cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and covered him with shame, right? But then there's a question, verse 46. How long, O Lord, will but you hide yourself forever? Notice the question, though. It's not why. 
Why, right. God? Right. Which is a valid question. That shows up in this part of the Psalms. Yeah. But it's a question of how long, which is kind of typical, right? That's an important cry because it says something very important. The doctrine here, what God is trying to teach us here, and notice that the response to evil for the Jew is not to deny that God exists. Right. There's evil in the world. Therefore, there is no God. That is not what they say. And it's also not to walk out on him. Right. Saying, well, I will not follow. Right. It's to do what? Ask how long this is going to take. It's to take him to task yeah. in a certain sense, right? Why it's are you letting this be? Well, not even why, but when will this come to an yeah, end? Yeah, both. Both, right. right? But to ask him, are you, oh Lord, going to change things or not? Yeah. As I'm, as I'm raising my kids, I'm trying to... <laughs> there's lots of problems when you're a teenager or a middle schooler, and I have a couple middle schoolers, and there's a lot of, lot of stuff. And I'm trying to encourage them when I don't know what advice to give them to say, have you, t- have you asked Jesus? Right. Which sounds almost trite when it comes out of my mouth, which maybe that's, again, a, a condemnation on myself. But to say, have you, has, have you actually asked him? Like, why is this happening? Why is this so hard? Why do these people not like me? Why blah, blah, blah? Well, have you asked Jesus the question? Because that is the knee-jerk response of the ancient Jew. Because all of it, when it says, are you going to change things or not? It assumes that the answer is yes. And that's yeah. why the how long matters. So how long until you do it? Because I assume the answer is yes. I'm trusting in you. I'm throwing myself in that confidence. It's Peter's confidence jumping off the boat, trusting that Jesus is going to catch him when he throws himself into his arms, knowing what he knows about himself. So I think God is trying to reveal something to us in book three, and it's that if nothing else, he can handle our anger. He can handle our frustration. It seems even in book three that... It's kind of rough to read. You're like, man, these are hard psalms. These are angry psalms. These are sad psalms. They don't feel edifying when I pray them in the morning when I get up. But that's kind of the point, right? Right. Um, And so we can see the book three contains the efforts of Israel to grapple both privately and corporately with, like you said, the question of why evil persists. Why do the bad people seem to get away with it? Why do we suffer, right? Why do the good, why do our prayers sometimes don't feel like they get answered, right? Yeah. I kept praying this. I prayed for this person's healing and it didn't happen. Yeah. And I think the Holy Spirit has put these verses together to show us that God can handle the grief that we need to voice. Uh, I, w- I want to close, I guess, and that's the last thing I have to say, with a paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that I find pretty moving. And it is an idea that I'm probably going to mispronounce this word, and maybe you can correct me. Um, <laughs> uh, parousia, not parousia, but paresia, this concept... You think I might be able to correct you about that? I thought you might, but apparently you're not. But it means filial boldness, right? And what what the Catechism says is this. It's 2778. It says, The power of the Spirit who introduces to us the Lord's Prayer is expressed in the liturgies of the East and of the West by the beautiful, characteristically Christian expression, paresia, straightforward simplicity, filial trust, joyous assurance, humble boldness, and the certainty of being loved. Loved. And I've tried to take that on. I'm not good at it, but that's yeah. the kind of prayer I want to have. Yeah. A certainty that I'm going to be heard. Yeah. I sometimes get really mad at my kids right. when they kind of let loose on me. And there's a respect. I mean, they need to honor me. I'm their father. That There's a goodness to that. But there's also something beautiful yeah. of a kid knowing that like, my dad can handle my emotions. And I can actually be safe to like, I'm a mess. And he's still going to love me at the other end of this. I hope that's what's happening. Maybe it's just the adolescent mind doesn't know what to do with itself. But I'm an adolescent mind, I guess, before the Lord, right? Right. And and to have the boldness and the assurance that, yeah, you're still going to love me. And I can just dump out all of my my stuff in this paresia, this filial boldness, because I know who my dad is. Anyway, that's what I take from, from book three. And I think that's what the challenge is. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Our Sunday School teacher is uh, Ross Geller, i.e. Scott Powell. Our executive producer <laughs> is Kate Oliveira. Go we will, uh, <laughs> we'll be back the first one with, I said. Uh, with, with book four of the Book of Psalms. No, week. Luke Wilson. Yeah, I was not Owen say, Wilson. Owen Wilson has kind a of second. a bit part. Owen Wilson has a very bit part in Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket is that no, the No, he's the brother. About? Yeah, but it, Luke Wilson is the important guy. Luke Wilson is the good-looking one. He's, well, I mean, I, Owen I is, don't know. Well, he has, like, the long hair and, like, Owen the, the cool... He's, long... he's cool, and Owen Wilson is is nerdy in Bottle Rocket. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Sorry. I modeled myself after Luke, Luke Wilson. Wilson. Let's be Luke... clear, everyone, about what I said. Jeez. If anybody didn't listen to the end of the podcast, they're just going to think Paris, I was everybody. modeling myself. <laughs> I was actually wondering about that. Dang it.
when you see him sell, you were like, oh yeah, totally. 